Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. The execution of the Earl of Stafford marked a fundamental turning point. And it is astonishing if you think that this man was, uh, after the king, the most powerful man in the, in the whole country. And even more astonishing, this uh, victory was won not by parliament, actually, but by the people themselves, by the masses, by what the, their enemies would describe as, as the mob. Uh, Brian uh, Manning, I think, correctly po- points out, and I quote, not the law, not parliament, not the king had decided the issue, but the mob. It seemed that power had passed to the rabble in the streets. Now that puts things in a nutshell. That's precisely the position that existed. And this, of course, caused growing alarm in the ruling circles, not just uh, the royalists, not just the king and his courtiers and so on, and the House of Lords, but increasingly actually among layers of the parliamentarians in the House of Commons, the so-called moderates, I suppose you could say the Blairites of of those days, were also becoming increasingly alarmed. Uh, They were particularly alarmed at the the outburst of popular uh, jubilation that followed the execution of, of Stafford. Uh, one MP uh, complained about this uh, uh, London, he referred, referred to London as this bloody and brutish city, one of them said. Uh, in, and he said, in the evening of the day, the day of the execution that is, and I'm quoting, in the evening of the day wherein he was executed, the greatest demonstrations of joy that possibly could be expressed ran through the whole uh, town and, 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 and countries hereabouts. And many that came up to town on purpose to see the execution rode in triumph back, waving their hats, just imagine the scene, waving their hats with all expressions of joy through every town that they went crying, his head is off, his head is off. And in many cases committing insolencies upon and breaking the windows of those persons who would not solemnize this festival with a bonfire. So ignorant and brutish is the multitude. The ignorant and brutish multitude, that's also the attitude of the ruling class today, uh, to the masses, for example, in the United States, that are engaged in the kind of mass protests of an insurrectionary character, which strongly resemble in many ways what, what occurred in England at that time. Now, the execution of, of uh, Stafford was a blow to the king, but also, he must have imagined that by making this concession, by, 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 by retreating on this, by, by signing his friend's death warrant, he might pacify these uh, ignoble masses, these ignorant and uh, bloody masses. On the contrary, you know, there's an old proverb, appetite comes with, with eating, and for every step back that they took, that Charles took, the, the, the masses became more and more encouraged. They demanded more and more. And that also applies, of course, above all, 
to the parliament. Well, by the way, uh, it is necessary to point out that the, this mass movement now produces a modification in the correlation of forces, the balance of forces becomes changed, with the emergence for the first time of a royalist party, an actual block of, uh, of pro-royalist uh, elements, solidly opposed to, 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 uh, to progress, uh, which increasingly also were, were sympathized, if not openly supported, by the right wing of the, uh, of the, of the opposition, of the moderates, if you like, who frankly were, were alarmed by this movement of the masses. Now, the next target of the masses, of course, was the other hated element of the regime, Archbishop Lord. Uh, his residence in Lambeth Palace had already been besieged, actually, before this, by a mob of 500 people hurling stones and battering at the doors, who were only, only turned away by force because the Archbishop, of course, was protected by armed guards. The, one of the leaders of this demonstration was, was hanged. But that didn't stop the movement. And Lord, of course, was the next for, for the chop. Didn't take long for Parliament to impeach him. The same grounds of, of, of treason. And Archbishop Lord ended up in the Tower of London. Fortunately for him, although it wasn't very comfortable accommodation, I suppose, uh, he was left there for about four years. He was allowed to live for four years because Parliament had other fish to fry. They had other, other, other problems on their plate. But uh, sooner or later, it caught up with him also. He was led to the, the same place as his friend, uh, the Earl of Strafford. He was executed four years later in the Tower of London. But the mood on the streets, of course, now was, 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 was increasingly rebellious. And the, the parliamentarians were stiffened. That's the, that's the dynamic of parliamentary uh, opposition. The opposition is stiffened to the degree that there's pressure from below, that they feel the pressure the fire under their backsides, if you like. And this uh, led to a, a sharpening of the parliamentary struggle. If the king thought that he would get away with this, he was sadly mistaken. On the contrary, the opposition went on the offensive, and they were gradually chipping away at every element of his rule, an absolute rule which has existed uh, forever, forever and a day. It was now being gradually eroded. One position after another was being taken away from him. And this finally ended up in November 1641 in the, in the emergence of a very famous document called the Grand Remonstrance. This is a, an historic document. It was, uh, I, I think it was written by Pym himself but, or, and the group around him. It was a kind of transitional program, if you like, of the, of the English Revolution, the English bourgeois revolution. Which, uh, which limited the king's power to an extreme degree. They'd already agreed that there should be triennial parliaments, which he was reluctantly obliged to, to agree to, that he, he couldn't dissolve parliament uh, as he'd always done in the past. And therefore, this, this, uh, this now culminated in this massive document, very long document, which consisted, first of all, in a list of all the complaints of the crimes and uh, misdeeds that he'd, he'd been perpetrating for the previous 11 years, plus the remedies, both uh, in relation to the, the civil law, the Star Chamber was abolished, uh, other repressive bodies were abolished, other powers were taken away from him. The uh, illegal taxation of tonnage and poundage and uh, ship money, all that went into the dustbin. It was uh, one thing after another was, was, was abolished. And in his totality, and that's the point, in his totality, the Grand Remonstrance represented a systematic demolition of monarchic rule. 
And that's, of course, something that Charles and his supporters could never tolerate. Now, I already said that by this time, the positions had hardened considerably within the parliament. A royalist party, a party of reaction, a party of order, perhaps, would be the best description of it. A party of order had uh, emerged, which was pledged to resist all, all these uh, innovations and, and changes. Yes, but Pym and the opposition now felt that they had the, the bit between their teeth and they were determined to press on, and they press on they did. And of course, this led to uproar in Parliament. There was very uh, violent scenes. At one stage, uh, swords were drawn, people were a shouting match, insults were swapped, blows were exchanged. And uh, yes, the members of Parliament at that time were allowed to carry swords. I don't think they're allowed to do that anymore. And, uh, but nevertheless, they did. Yes, the swords were drawn. And one, one MP actually complained subsequently that he was in fear of his life. Fortunately, things calmed down, but that was, uh, that was a serious incident. And the debate around this question, of course, it was, it was furiously contested as to whether things should be put to the vote or not. And then, of course, point by point, a, a ferocious resistance, a, a dogged and relentless resistance was, was staged. And, the, and this debate, it dragged on. It dragged on and dragged on. It dragged on quite a long time. It dragged on into the, into the evening. Now, of course, the aristocrats uh, of the party of order, I mean, they, they were very firm in their uh, support for the monarchy, but they were also very fond of their uh, food and drink, you know. They didn't, didn't like to go without, uh, and they'd gone without lunch. The time, time for lunch had passed, and the time for tea time had passed, and supper was due to come up. And, of course, bellies, aristocratic bellies began to rumble. And, yes, one by one... Uh, <laughs> their lordships began to fall away. They got into their carriages and drove home to a nice, uh, tasty uh, dinner and, and a warm, uh, comfortable bed. And there, now we arrive at the early hours of the morning and the thing is still not being put to the vote. And here there's uh, an irony of history. Early in the morning, one of the Charles's spies, he had spies, of course, were following the the whole proceedings, reported to him that everything was under control and that the vote would be lost. That it seemed to be the case. It was all in the bag. And, and therefore, poor Charles went to bed with a tranquil conscience and he slept soundly, I assume, that night, only to be woken up next thing in the morning with the news that uh, the vote had been lost. Yes, by 11 votes, very narrow majority, but yes, but Pym won by 11 votes. Yes, but nevertheless, a majority is a majority, and that was that. And the passing of, the, uh, of this notorious document, the, the Grand Remonstrance, it was a turning point. But above all, this was, this was a defeat for Charles, but worse was to come. Now, yes, it was a defeat, but I think he could have lived with that, you know. He would probably be thinking, he was a cunning individual, he'd be thinking of ways and means of turning it into a dead uh, letter so it wouldn't be actually put into, into practice as well. That would be his usual tactic. Yes, but then something else happened. That was okay, as long as it remained within the uh, limits of Parliament, this cosy little world of uh, parliamentary debate and so on, that's okay. Yes, but the masses were watching all this very closely. That was the decisive element. They were watching every step like hawks. Yes. And Pym here took a very bold step. You've got to give the man his due. 
Pym represented that more resolute, shall we say, the, the, the more left-wing element of the opposition, the bourgeois opposition, that was prepared to lean on the masses, to, to press on their, uh, to, to give them support against uh, the, the king. In fact, it was the only support, it was their main, if not only support that they had. And not just a support in order to push forward their demands, also increasingly a means of self-defense. Because it became clear from the time that these uh, cavaliers in Parliament were standing up and uh, getting the swords out of their scabbards and so on, that was a serious warning. That worse was to come. But Charles and his gang were not going to be prepared to accept this. And sooner or later, matters would be settled not by parliamentary debate, but by violence, by force. And whether you like it or not, many people don't like it, the pacifists don't like it, and so on. They've read the Sermon of the Mount and the rest of it. Yes, but uh, all history tells us, unfortunately, whether you like it or not, that all serious questions are always settled by force, by wars, by revolutions. Yes, yes. Those, that's how serious questions are settled in this uh, imperfect world and society of ours. Therefore, Pym looked upon the masses as a necessary uh, form of defense against. Uh, Against the danger of a coup d'etat, to, to put it bluntly. And he made a bold step. He decided to print the grand remonstrances and distribute it massively as a pamphlet. It was like throwing a, a hand grenade into society that was already quite uh, worked up for a number of reasons in Ireland and so on, which I'll deal with shortly. Oh, yes. That really put the cat among the pigeons. That really put the fat on the fire. That really infuriated the, the Charles and his supporters. One of them complained that uh, this grand reverence, one of the cavaliers in Parliament said that uh, it was an appeal to the people. Th that appeal to the people, he, he, said, he described. And that was quite correct, even formally, actually. I mean, these documents were supposed to be submitted to the king for his approval. It was not. It was an appeal to the people. That, therefore, that, that was a fundamental break with tradition and uh, had explosive consequences. But even more explosive things were due to occur. We're, we're occurring at, the, at that very time, as a matter of fact. Beginning in October, well, actually in the summer already, there'd been a rebellion in Ireland. And people took note of that, but not very much. It didn't seem to, 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 to lead to, to very great atrocities or problems or bloodshed. Initially, yes, but all that changed in the month of October. Reports began to filter through of a terrible massacre in Ireland. It was a frightful massacre. The uh, Irish peasantry, the poor Irish peasants, particularly in the north, in what's known as Ulster, had been driven off the land to, to a large extent for, for years, for, for decades. They'd been driven off their land by uh, immigrants, Protestant immigrants from England and Scotland in particular. Puritans, Protestants, Presbyterians, and so on. So these were alien people speaking an alien language with an alien religion, and so on. Of course, there was not a lot of resentment building up because of the ill treatment of the Irish. That that must be underlined. And this, of course, the burning anger, the resentment, and hatred of the of, of oppression of the Irish built up to the point where this rebellion of the Irish nobles actually. Uh, acted as a, as a detonator, which, which led to a terrible uh, explosion of 
of anger and hatred directed unfortunately against the poor people against uh, the uh, English and Scottish Protestant farmers and their families and so on, were, were butchered, were massacred. We've seen this before so many times, you know. In Rwanda, we saw that. In uh, Yugoslavia, we saw that, where people living next door to each other, the neighbor, one neighbor denounces another neighbor because of religious differences or ethnic differences or linguistic or whatever, whatever differences. Terrible massacre takes place, took, took place. It's impossible to say how many were killed. It's a matter of dispute to this very day, but uh, that's not important. The truth of the matter was nobody could deny this was one of the blackest pages in Irish history. And when the news of this uh, slaughter of uh, men, women, and children, if they weren't uh, butchered with knives or swords and so on, or hanged and so on, they were driven out. This, uh, this was part of the problem. They were stripped of their clothes and turned out into the freezing winter. It was a very cold winter. They were left to die of cold and hunger on the, like dogs on the road. When, when this news came back, and it, of course this is the age of the pamphlet, when this came back to, uh, to, to London and was distributed, and of course it didn't lose anything in the telling, it gained, uh, the, uh, was suitably embellished, the news of this massacre uh, occurred. Now, you must understand, you see, that um, people were afraid. There was a lot of fear of... of uh, Roman Catholicism of, of papistry of, of the Pope and so on in, in, in England because this is the period of, when, of religious wars on the continent. Terrible massacres took place, far worse than what took place in Ireland. Took place every day in, in Germany, for example, in the, during the 30, year, 30 years war, where whole cities were butchered in the most terrible way. And all these stories came back. Yes, it, it was well known. And therefore, the Roman Catholic Church was regarded with absolute horror. The Inquisition and so on and so forth. Uh, the uh, massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day in, day, day in Paris, where, where the Protestant population of Paris was butchered. This is the, on instructions by the French monarchy. This was known. And therefore, yes, people were horrified and they were also scared. They were frightened out of their minds. And therefore, a kind of frenzy uh, occurred, of a terrible fear of papist plots, which added to the, to the general discontent. This was an important uh, explosive element, particularly because people thought, rightly or wrongly, they believed, that the king and queen were involved in the, in the Irish rebellion and were involved in the massacres. Now, this was denied, of course. Charles uh, his wife denied it. Yes, but it, ca it cannot be denied that Charles was actively conspiring to bring an Irish Catholic army from Ireland to, to crush the, the parliament. That, that's a matter of record. That's, that's a fact. But that was also as well known. The Earl of Stratford, in a sense, let the cat out of the bag in the famous letter, which I quoted recently, I think last week, where he mentioned that he was, he was going to raise an army in Ireland to um, subdue uh, the kingdom. And he didn't see which kingdom he was referring to. A fact which is pointed out by his by his enemies led to partly led to his executions. Therefore, the people were roused. The people were roused. There was a, a, a huge movement, a mass movement of, of many poor people who attacked the houses of, of wealthy uh, Catholics in the main. Not entirely. It's not quite correct to say this was entirely an anti-Catholic thing. It wasn't. 
the anti-Catholic thing was an expression of a general hostility towards uh, the status quo, the, the establishment, the rich people, the fat cats, and so on. Because also wealthy Protestants were was, was attacked. Those that were insufficient in their support for Parliament, whose loyalty to Parliament was in doubt, they, they were attacked and, uh, and raided and looted. Yes, that's correct. And this, of course, also sent a shudder down the, the spines of the, uh, of the ruling class. But of course, Charles, throughout all this, was uh, not prepared to take this lying down. He was actively preparing a counterstroke. And this came in uh, early December. First of all, I think you should make, point out briefly that uh, typical of, of Charles and his maneuvers and intrigues, he went to Scotland. This was, I think, in, at the end of August. Yeah, and he came back sometime. Uh, was it in November he came back? I think, or the end of end of October, perhaps he came back. Can't remember exactly. He went to Scotland for a purpose. You know, he'd just been defeated in two bishops' wars, as you know, but he was still trying to intrigue with a layer of the Scottish nobility to get their support to invade England with the Scottish army, and that that also was known. That was duly noted by Parliament. Because he came unstuck, quite amusing in a way, because. He tried to bribe, he was very good at bribing people. He tried to bribe the Scottish mobility, who were quite uh, amenable to bribery. They were quite willing as long as, as, long as the price was uh, right. They were also split, they were divided among themselves. And he was taking advantage of this division. There was a plot to overthrow the existing government in Scotland. He was well, well aware of this. He was involved in it as a matter of fact. You know, this is the kind of man that he was. Uh, and he was quite successful. He tried to bribe people quite successfully. Yes, but he had one big problem. That was religion. Back to the religious question. Charles was a high Anglican, as we know, but a convinced, a dedicated, loyal uh, high uh, Anglican. The Scots uh, were, were Calvinists in the main. The Covenanters were Calvinists. And it was quite, amusing, quite an amusing game. He tried to, to uh, win over the Calvinists. And of course, they were quite uh, happy at, at his uh, humble and uh, friendly attitude. They thought they were convincing him, if they weren't, of course. He was just fooling, he was just playing them along. Yeah, but the poor chap had to endure, we have got to go feel some sympathy for him. He had to endure weeks and weeks of being lectured continuously, day and night, by these Scottish divines, these religious clerics, and so on, lecturing him on the evils of Catholicism and the evils of. God knows what, and uh, quoting at length from the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, they weren't much interested in the New Testament. That was too much. That was for, that was for uh, young kids. The serious stuff was in the Old Testament, the blood and blood and fire stuff. Uh, you had to endure hours and days of this. I think at the end of the day, at the end of his stay in Scotland, he must have thought that uh, whatever hell is like, it must be quite similar to this. And he was glad to get out of the place. Also, his, his attempt to, to, to get support of Renaissance failed miserably because the coup d'etat that they were organizing failed, and therefore he was thoroughly discredited. He returned to London, but he still had a trick or two up his sleeve. He organized a, a, a great ceremony, a great, it was in early November, forgotten the actual date, but he he'd arranged an enormous procession, a lavish procession with uh, horsemen and uh, cavaliers and so on. The word cavalier comes into play at this time. I should perhaps explain. What does the word cavalier mean? Well, 
it's uh, similar to the in its uh, etymological origins. It's similar to the Spanish word caballero, and all caballero means it means a gentleman, but it also means a horseman. It comes from the the word comes from a horse actually, like the French word the chevalier comes from cheval, meaning a horse. It's the same horseman. Only wealthy people have horses, you know, and, and therefore they're they're literally above the rest of the population. Yeah, but cavalier becomes to mean a gentleman. I'll come to deal with the cavaliers later. But these, these gentlemen were parading through the city of London with their arms, with their swords and so on. A very splendid sight and probably the, the masses, since they didn't have television in those days, they didn't have much entertainment at all. This was quite, they welcomed this, uh, this huge procession. They were turned out to see it. They cheered the king. God saved the king and so on and so forth. They used quite bowing. They'd never seen the king before, you see. Nowadays, of course, the monarchy comes on the TV every five minutes. You get sick of the sight of them, but not in those days. No, no, the king was behind the high walls in his parties, picnics, and balls, and ne never came out. The masses never. Here he is in his carriage, uh, graciously passing through the ranks of his loyal subjects and so on. The Lord Mayor comes out and gives him a large donation of money because the Lord Mayor was one of those that uh, the, <laughs> the upper crust has supported. Uh, Charles. Yes. But anyway, of course, a large part of the popularity was the fact that they distributed a large amount of free booze. Wine flowed like water through the, the city. Everyone could get drunk and so on. Yeah, very nice. And that convinced Charles and his entourage that he was doing rather well, that he was quite, quite well. What these people were cheering and so when they saw these cavaliers parading through the city, very few people imagined that uh, in the not too distant future, these same cavaliers would, would, un, un, would unscabbard their swords and they'd be plunged into the entrails of uh, many uh, innocent uh, men and women and children as well in a civil war. But uh, at the time, nobody uh, thought about those things. And Charles came back. Yes, but despite of all this show and flummery and uh, ceremonies, he still was in a weak position. He didn't have a majority, didn't have a majority in Parliament. He has support, it's true, in the House of Lords. And part of the support, a large part of his support in the House of Lords, I think I mentioned this last time, was due to the presence of a, a large number of bishops who, uh, who had an automatic right to sit in the House of Lords and speak on and vote on all questions, whether they they pertain to religion or not. And, and this solid block, this reaction, that, that was an important component in the party of order, the reactionary party, that was systematically blocking progressive reforms that were coming from the lower house, from the house of Commons. And therefore, of course, the, the, uh, there was, uh, when the masses became aware of this, an enormous cry went up. A slogan which echoed through the streets, every marketplace, every street corner. Every fishwife, every apprentice, one slogan was heard, no bishops, no bishops, get the bishops out of the House of Lords. That was the, the cry that went up. And by God, that had an effect. There was a ferment. The Irish massacres, of course, did nothing to, to calm this. On the contrary, it did. the movement acquired a very wide, wide sweep. And it culminated in the Christmas of 1641-42, three days, absolutely decisive days, where London entered into a stage of insurrection. It was a complete popular insurrection, no two ways about it. And the most militant sector of this 
And that was a constant feature with the apprentices. There was a large number of apprentices in, in London. Uh, poor, they were poor, they, what, what, what uh, Clarendon would describe as the meaner sort of people, the poor, poor apprentices, the, the lowest of the low, no, not quite, but almost the lowest of the low, until they'd become qualified and became masters in their own right. They had no economic uh, and social independence. They lived with their masters, actually, and the masters decided on everything. They, they had control over their lives and so on. Yeah, but the masters also now, the craftsmen, the carpenters, the cobblers, and other uh, other people like that, they become radicalized. They were pro they were radical uh, re re religious radicals. They went to the churches to hear fiery sermons by uh, by all kinds of preachers, radical preachers. They were Puritans, and therefore they were not uh, in favor of the, the king. They were very much in favor of the parliament, and they actually allowed the apprentices to go on the streets and dance if they didn't actually encourage them to do so. And I believe that they, in many cases they, they did. And therefore you had this boiling mood of anger building up and building up until it finally exploded in, uh, uh, in December. And the, spark, the sparking point took place on the 3rd of December, over the question of the governor of the, or the lieutenant, I think the, the, the term is, of the Tower of London. Now then, of course, you all know the Tower of London and you know what it means today. It's just a ceremonial place. It's a very nice place to go on a Sunday afternoon with the wife and kids and have a look at the, uh, at the armory and the crown jewels and so on. Kind of a glorified museum. Yeah, that's now. Wasn't the case then. For centuries, the Tower of London was a symbol of oppression, a very dark place, a place of imprisonment, torture, and execution. It was also full of, it was an armory, it was full of weapons, guns, cannons of all sorts, muskets, you name it. One person actually described the Tower of London, I think quite aptly, I forgot who it was, he described it, he said it was like a battleship stuck in the heart of London bristling with cannons and these cannons were pointing at the workers districts the poor districts the poor houses that were clustered all around the city and all around the uh, the tower of london very threatening place garrisoned of course by troops heavily garrisoned now the previous uh, lieutenant of the uh, of the i think his name was bailey i might be wrong he he was a parliamentarian. He was favorable to parliament. In fact, when Charles tried to bribe him, he offered, offered him a bribe of 20,000 pounds, that's a huge amount of money, to allow Strafford to, to escape. He refused. He refused. He's a man of principle. He refused. Charles was determined to get rid of him and replace him with somebody else. Now, the person he replaced him with, that's the, the issue. And before we, we deal with this gentleman, let's go back. His name, by the way, was... Um, Colonel Thomas uh, Lunsford, Lunsford, Thomas Lunsford, Sir Thomas Lunsford. We'll deal with him in a moment. Before we do, let's go back to this question of cavaliers and roundheads. This is a time when, the, when these words enter into the lexicon of the English language. I've already said what a cavalier is. It's supposed to be a gentleman and so on. Uh, it, it's to do with their hairdo, actually. The roundheads were, were actually the apprentices. Whereas the, the, the cavaliers, the gentlemen, had long locks, long, uh, they went to uh, the right uh, hairdressers, I suppose. 
the apprentice boys didn't they they were like skinheads i think skinhead would be the nearest equivalent to a roundhead they had closely cropped hair a fact which was noticed by these rich aristocratic snobs and they sneered at their hairdo you look at these crop heads round heads and so on yeah, you, they call them different. That's what this is a term of class abuse. That's what the roundhead is. But let's go back to the Cavaliers. You see, at this time we're talking about, London was full of uh, Cavaliers, uh, gentlemen, well, wealthy. No, no, not wealthy because they were quite poor actually. These were uh, unemployed army officers. They'd been demobilized after the collapse of. Uh, of the second of the two the two bishops wars they, they were without employment mercenary soldiers you know mercenary officers now just imagine the type of guy that we're talking about you know he's full of airs and graces he's full of himself swaggering around and he's got his, his clothes maybe are not not quite new they're a little bit shabby but they're quite posh and he goes around well how does he spend his time well what, what can he spend his time on he's unemployed he spent half the day sleeping and the rest of the day he spent uh, carousing boozing getting drunk swearing beating people up chasing women going to the prostitutes and brothels and of course uh, of course he would never pay his bills <laughs> these things didn't make these guys very popular so the term cavalier became an insult as far as most Londoners were concerned. Ordinary Londoners who had to put up with their constant insults and arrogance and bullying and swaggering of these guys, swaggering around with their swords and their cloaks and the rest of it, swearing. Swearing was not uh, appreciated, it was not uh, tolerated as far as the, the Puritans were concerned. Neither was boozing and drinking and getting drunk or any of the other deadly sins that these guys were involved. Therefore, they were heartily disliked and feared actually by the population and a prized specimen of this gang of these uh, people is precisely this uh, this app i'm referring to uh, colonel lunsford thomas lunsford he was a typical cavalier in every sense of the word a thug in other words an absolute thug. actually he had a very dark history he was uh, actually guilty of murder he fled to the continent he then he lived as a mercenary soldier selling his uh, bloody trade to anyone that would uh, purchase a sword he then came back where he he came back to, uh, to london where he earned the uh, he gained the attention of the king for his extreme loyalty oh yes that, that was the case uh, lunsford was an absolute uh, dedicated loyal supporter of uh, of Charles I. And therefore Charles, when he looked around for somebody to take over the, the, the tower, well, who should he turn to? But this same, uh, this same, this uh, Thomas Lunsford, he was made the, the Lord Lieutenant of the tower. Now, for the mass of the population, starting with people, the radicals and uh, people like the apprentices, this was the equivalent of showing a red rag to a bull. It was a blatant provocation to put a man like that in charge of a, such, a, such a delicate thing. This warship threatening the existence of the, uh, the working population, the people in the, in the poor areas, bristling with cannon. With all the... And therefore, of course, when they heard about it, they were absolutely furious. They went into a frenzy of rage. And therefore, the movement started. 
they were from the from the word go. They were petitions. I mean, Charles was warned. He should have been warned, but he was incapable organically of listening to warnings of any sort. Uh, a couple of the uh, the uh, captains of the train bands. The train bands was the, the local militia. It was the armed forces of the day. A couple of captains of the train bands immediately sent a protest to the to the king. What what the hell are you doing? Putting Lunsford in charge of of, of the Tower of London. Parliament also protested, although it's noticeable that the House of Commons sent a protest and a petition to the king. It did not, however, get the support of the House of Lords. You see that how the, the divisions will open up, class divisions very clearly. The House of Lords wouldn't support this uh, this thing. The uh, yes, but uh, when the when the when the when the apprentices and other layers discovered this, they were furious, and therefore words words spread like wildfire. It was denounced by the, 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 uh, in, in the, pul the pulpit. Uh, radical pieces denounced the fact that that wicked, bloody Colonel Lunsford is now sworn lieutenant of the tower. This uh, it caused a, a shiver of fear to go down people's spines, and also a burning anger and a rage. And therefore, there was uproar. There was uproar. Masses of people steamed onto the streets, and they began to arm. Whatever they could get their they get their hands on clubs, maybe they get a, a few swords together, perhaps the odd musket, but uh, whatever clubs, if if, if all else fate, knives, clubs, anything, and they were threatening to storm the Tower of London if if Lancelot was not was not removed. This was a serious danger. Eventually, Charles woke up to the danger when he saw when you could feel the the heat of the flames under his backside. He called a meeting of the Privy Council, in which it was decided a bit later in the day, but better late than never, perhaps, to dismiss Lunsford. At the same meeting, issued a proclamation against against unlawful assemblies in London and Westminster. Now that was the the, the main point. But uh, now it started. This, of course, took place just after Christmas. It's just uh, Christmas has just taken place now. I mentioned this before, but I will not apologise for mentioning it again. About 18 months ago, the BBC in its wisdom produced a program, a, a, quite a scandalous program in my view, about the English Revolution. First time they'd ever did this. So, I mean, you could expect, what could you expect except a, a disgraceful hatchet job? And all they had to say about the uh, this uprising, because that's what it was, popular uprising, and the apprentices, is that the apprentices uh, uh, were, were on a drunken spree, apparently. They got drunk because it was Christmas. And there's plenty of drink around. Yeah, probably true. There must, must have been a lot of drink. Although a lot of the apprentices were religious people, actually. They were Puritans, and therefore probably they didn't even drink. This, uh, the record shows that many of them went to church services regularly and so on. In fact, they used to go, one of their favorite hobbies was to go to services with these uh, Lordian preachers uh, and disrupt the service by singing psalms. The priest would start to give his sermon, and they would start singing in a very loud, raucous voice. Psalms? Well, who can object to that? That's from the Bible, after all. Oh yes, these young revolutionaries—that's what they—they were—they were fired up, not by alcohol, but mainly by revolution and by yes, by religion also. And therefore, this is precisely at a time when people were seized with the fear of papist plots and conspiracies, and this was probably seen by most of them in that light. And therefore, of course, they, they, were, they, they did, they went, went into action 
in a big way. They didn't even know that the king was planning to dismiss Lazarus. That was to take the fire out of the situation. It didn't succeed. They continued, and they made a beeline for parliament, for, um, for both houses of parliament. And they surrounded the parliament in the, the palace yards. And they formed a kind of, um, how shall I describe it? Like, like running the gauntlet, you know. They, they, they opened up like a, a, a tunnel. And there were thousands of them, armed, by the way and shouting and hurling abuse at the parliamentarians and so on. And depending who went past, they would either call out, uh, they would call out, a good lord, a good man, let him pass, and he would pass. But <laughs> otherwise, if they weren't considered to be a good man, and particularly if there was a bishop, they could expect a lot of hassle. The cry went up very soon. No bishops, no bishops. The bishops were attacked, they were insulted. Uh, they had to, to flee. And the whole situation was getting out of hand. Now, by some strange coincidence, I don't know if it was a coincidence, but maybe, Colonel Lunsford himself, the man who'd just been dismissed, was present in Westminster Hall, together with a number of other officers, armed with swords, of course. One of them, Captain David Hyde, I think his name was, began to get uh, annoyed and shouted out that he would cut the throats of those round-headed dogs that bawled against bishops. That's what he said. He shouted out, who says no bishops? And some of the uh, demonstrators shouted back, we say no bishops. Whereupon, Captain Hyde drew his sword, followed by Captain Lunsford and the other, and six more of this crew, cut their swords out, and, and there they began to slash and cut. Many of the citizens, many were wounded. I don't know if, if any of them were killed. It's not recorded as far as I know. But the, 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 the battle started. The streets of London were in a state already of civil war. A battle broke out. The citizens replied with stones. They threw stones and bricks at these officers. And eventually they forced them to flee. One of those who led this uh, protest but it was none other than, uh, than uh, John Lilburn, the leader of the, of, of the, the Lebelers, as he became, had been released from prison recently and now was leading. He, he by the way, had been a, a London apprentice precisely. He was an apprentice, although he was from quite a well-to-do family. He became an apprentice. Here he was leading the demonstration. These they three stones and eventually the gentlemen, the cavaliers, had to run away to escape. The news of, of uh, this attack, <clears throat> of the armed clash with, with, with Lundford's gang, again spread like wildfire. Other more, more hundreds and thousands of uh, people turned out and, and rushed to, to Parliament, armed with swords and staves and other weapons and sticks, which caused uproar throughout the city and in Westminster. The king issued a, a proclamation which had been prepared by the Privy Council the night before, actually, demanding that, that the people should disperse and return to their homes. I'll read, I've got an extract from it here. It says that uh, all persons now assembled, uh, assembled in any numbers without His Majesty's authority, who forthwith should for, do forthwith dissolve their assemblies and companies and repair to their dwellings and places of abode, abode upon their perils of being proceeded against as violators of the public peace and his, his Majesty's kingdom. The Lord Mayor, 
that agent of the king also, and the sheriffs of London, rode about on horseback uh, trying to disperse, the, uh, calm the, the, the multitude, but the multitude was not going to be passed. The king uh, instructed the Lord, Lord Mayor to raise the train bands, the, that, that's the army in effect, same as uh, Donald Trump now, I suppose. He ordered them to raise the train, ba train bands of London to help him to restore order by shooting to kill if necessary, if the citizens resisted him or refused to disperse. But they didn't disperse. And the fact of the matter, the matter was, many of the train bands, including the officers, were sympathetic to the demonstrators. And therefore, the king's order was a dead letter. He did, when, when, in the moment of truth, he didn't have a force, ser a serious force that he could do. He could uh, base on. Here's another quote. Early next morning, uh, oh yes, now they turn the attention of the House of Lords. Early next morning, Tuesday the 28th of December, we're talking about three days here, three days of insurrection. It was an actual insurrection, which is not generally realized. People don't know this. Early next morning, Tuesday the 28th of December, the citizens and apprentices flocked in greater numbers, talking about thousands of people, to the Houses of Parliament than the day before. Diverse of them being armed with halberds, that's a kind of axe, a combined battle axe and a spear, swords and other offensive weapons. An Irish bishop reported, quote, Mine eyes did see them, and mine ears could, could hear them. It, it, it said, what bishop, what bishop soever that they would meet, it would be his death. And I thank God that they knew not me to be a bishop. Another eyewitness states, they stood so thick, thousands of them, they stood so, so, so thick that we had much ado to pass with our coaches. And though it were a dark night, their, uh, their, their huge number, their huge number of links made as much light as day. They were links with torches. They were, imagine the, the impact of a, a huge demonstration of thousands of people with torches. And lighting up the streets at night as if it were day. They cried, no bishops, no papist lords. Looked into our coaches, whether any bishops were therein, and we went, went on in great danger. And of course the bishops attempted by all means to get into the House of Lords. They were blocked, all the doors were blocked. They couldn't, as you just heard, they couldn't get in. Some of them attempted to get in by boat, as it's House of Parliament is next to the Thames. There were plenty of boats around. Yes, but when they tried to do that, they were again halted. Here's a quote. Whenever a, bishop, whenever a bishop's boat appeared on the horizon, the apprentice, apprentices shouted, a bishop, a bishop. And so with cries kept them from, from, from landing. They couldn't even land. And therefore, they successfully blocked. The, for some time, the parliament had been trying to exclude the bishops from the House of Lords, and by direct action, these guys succeeded, the masses succeeded by their own power in a space of three days in achieving what the parliament couldn't have achieved in, in weeks and, and months. Then the, shout, the cry went up once they'd, had, they'd excluded the bishops quite successfully. There's no more, no more bishops to be excluded. The cry went up to Westminster Abbey. Now, the... the, the, the uh, the reason for this is not uh, clear. The enemies uh, uh, wanted to slander the demonstrators, present them in the worst possible light. Said, said they were going there to destroy the abbey, to tear down the statues and break the stained glass windows. That may or may not be true. 
But it's more likely, in my view, that the main reason was that uh, the abbey actually was held by an armed force uh, controlled by the Bishop of York. And there were prisoners inside. They kept prisoners. They wanted to release the prisoners, political prisoners, actually. I think that was probably the main mode of motivation. Then again, they were led by John, John Lil, Lilburn and Richard Weissman, Weissman, who, yes, it says here, who, who demanded the, the, the release of the youths. But as they approached, they were attacked by armed men the, uh, and so on and so on, gentlemen who rushed out with swords, who rushed out with swords drawn and drove them before, before them like fearful hares. Weissman subsequently died of his wounds. So that's an indication of the seriousness of the situation. Yes, but ultimately by December the 28th, all the bishops had been excluded. I think only two of them managed to attend, who presented a protest to the, uh, to the government, which Pym regarded as treasonable. And the response of uh, Parliament was to arrest 12 of the bishops, who were sent to prison on the 30th of December. 1641. Now, just look at this situation. By the direct action of the London masses, the London mob, as their enemy would say, Charles has been deprived, just been deprived of one of the main instruments of his power of, of, of reaction. The bishops were removed, physically removed, from the, the House of, of Lords. And even then, by the way, he couldn't restore order. The order could not be restored immediately because uh, the commons wouldn't take any action against the demonstrators uh, who felt that they had the support of, of, of Pym and the people in the, in the laws, which they did. They did. 2,000 apprentices armed with clubs and swords gathered in the city in order to rescue other apprentices which had been arrested on order of the Lord Mayor. And as I say, many of the train bands, many of the train bands, and even some of the constables, the equivalent of the police, sympathized with the demonstrators. They wouldn't take action against them. Pym himself was reported to have said, to have exclaimed, God forbid that the House of Commons should proceed in any way to dishearten people to obtain their just desires in such a way. Here we have the essence of the matter that the Pym understands. The only way to, to defend themselves against the royalist reaction was precisely to lean on the masses and even to encourage them to, to move. Yeah, but that, that view wasn't, you see, here you see a division opening up within the ranks of the, uh, of the parliamentarians, of the reformists, if you like. Because there's another, uh, here's an example, another prominent parliamentarian, is, his accounts uh, are an important source of this period, by the name of Whitlock, a lawyer and a moderate reformer, uh, described the demonstrations as, I quote, a dismal thing to all sober men, especially, especially members of parliament, to see and hear. That's the frightened voice of the ruling class of the property owners who were terrified of the sudden eruption of the men with no shirts, of the masses, which, of course, uh, they don't control. The accusation was made by the, the, the royalists subsequently that all these demonstrations were really got, gotten up by Pym. I think the same nonsense was put forward in the, the, that disgraceful program on BBC television by these stupid gossip historians, I can't describe them any, in any other way, uh, that uh, it was all organized by Pym, by this, this Machiavellian uh, 
Well, not so. I mean, it's not clear, actually. It's impossible to say to what extent this dem these demonstrations, th this insurrection was planned. To what extent, or to what extent was it, uh, was it spontaneous? Well, one could ask the same question about the present pro protest movement in the USA. Was it planned? I don't think so. Was it spontaneous? Most emphatically, yes. But in the case of the English uh, Revolution, there are certain indications, there are certain uh, signs that organization, a certain degree of organization was involved. I mean, how else could you explain the, the speed with which these, these people mobilized? They had means of doing it. They didn't have television or, or uh, radio or, um, or Facebook or anything like Twitter, nothing like that. But they had these preachers, for example, who preached from the fire, preachers pre preaching from the pulpits who spread information and so on. They had other means of, like the masters themselves, the masters of the apprentices, as I said, sympathized with their cause and would have uh, let them, hey, look, this, this is occurring in the parliament. Why did you go take my sword, take my club and get stuck in? Uh, that, there's indications, clear indications, that kind of thing went on. It is entirely likely that some of the more radical parliamentarians, such as Pym, would have been involved to some extent. To what extent? I don't know. But that they were behind the whole thing, that's nonsense. It's, uh, that's nonsense. There's no way that they, they didn't have the means of doing this. And therefore, this was a spontaneous mass uprising directed against uh, the entire order. Actually, that, That's why the moderate, the, the Blairites of the period were, were getting cold feet. They were getting alarmed and moving away, moving again. Of course, they couldn't stop it once it started. And I suspect that even people like Pim would, wouldn't have been entirely comfortable with the way in which the masses were beginning to accumulate uh, a, a power. Um, this movement continued for three days, after which it began to, to subside. It, didn't, it wasn't put down, it subsided. Probably because, partly because they felt that they'd gained their objective, which was after all to get rid of uh, Lumsford and to exclude uh, bishops from the House of Lords, they succeeded. Also, there must have been an element of tiredness. And yes, to some extent, of course, many of these guys would have been injured and uh, would need recovery and so on. To some extent, to lick their wounds and go, go away and think about things. You know, war is a series of battles and of course, uh, battles, can lead to exhaustion, uh, and for a period the troops need to recover, which actually uh, occurred. Here for the first time, by the way, is the, 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 the accusation of cavaliers and roundheads occurred, which became uh, subsequently like battle cries in the, in the revolution. Three days of marching, constant marching, alarms, fighting, shouting, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, in which the, the, the masses had actually taken on, get, think about this. These unorganized masses had taken on the, the whole might of the state. Yes, and they succeeded, they won, they won. Yes, but, yes, but, was it a complete victory? No, not really. They'd won a, a number of important points, like the exclusion of the bishops and the the, the sacking of Lumsford, yeah, they were the, those were important victories which undoubtedly increased the morale of the masses. But the king was still there. The court clique was still there. They still had control of the army, which then became an issue, a, a serious issue between the king and, uh, and Pym, as we'll see in the next uh, 
episode. And of course, Charles was felt again, once again, humiliated, frustrated, angry, very angry, and eaten up with a desire for revenge. Lumsford and other cavaliers volunteered, thousands of them, volunteered to come to London to defend the king. They were taken on. He organized a special guard in the palace. Courtiers, he issued an instruction that all courtiers must wear swords at all times, something which was not uh, at all uh, normal. And therefore, clearly, clearly, the battle had been won, yes, but not the war. And Charles now was preparing a counterstroke. He was preparing seriously for the ultimate, the final showdown about which we will speak in the next episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider, or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.